Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 11, Trauma-Informed Schools, with Steph Robinson and Liz John. Welcome back, everyone. We are joined today um, by two school practitioners, and we are really excited to let you know that we were actually broadcasting from a school. We are currently in Pencoitra High School. We've taken the podcast on the road. We're in Barrie in South Wales. Pencoitra High School are actually kind of a long-standing partner school for us at Cardiff Metropolitan University. Our student teachers are currently on placement here now, but we're here today to talk about uh, an aspect of practice that Pencoitra High School have recently trained in and are trying to roll out in the school for various reasons but I think before um, we get into the depths of this we should probably introduce our lovely guests Tom. Today we are joined by Liz John and Steph Robinson. Steph welcome how are you doing? Hi Emma, hi Tom, thanks for having us on the show. Good to have you Liz, welcome. Good afternoon. Thank you. Morning. Uh, afternoon. Sorry. <laughs> it's been a long day. <laughs> it has. And it's, it's nice to have the authentic school sounds in the background again from uh, from being locked down and never seeing anybody. We've now got the sounds of uh, pupils having their lunch break in the background and also the sound of your school being knocked down as well, which is nice. Hopefully yes, while we're not in it. Yes, yes, yes. We're in the middle of having a new £35 million bill. So thank you to Welsh Government and the Vale of Glamorgan for their help with that. And we'll be in it soon. Yeah. As I often say to school colleagues who come on the podcast there are a number of things that we could pick your brains about when it comes to education but you're here to talk to us about something that's quite I would assume close to your hearts because you've both trained in this approach and we're here to talk about trauma-informed practice or trauma-informed schools TIS for short so it's probably best that you tell us your journey with this where did it begin why trauma-informed practice Um, why was this a priority for the school back last year we had a new head last summer and he was very much wanting us to build these positive relationships with these children after lockdown he mentioned this course it was talked about and it, it seemed really interesting you know I wanted to go back into the roots of these pupils you know why they feel isolated why they had the fear of coming out and also you know going back working sort of the, the neuroscience behind it as well um, so I put myself forward for the course um, myself and, and Steph along with about 40 50 others on the course yeah um, we do have a lead practitioner Sally Palakis um, she's actually the leader of of this training and yeah so we put ourselves forward in 10 weeks course 10 weeks, ten weeks yeah. yeah very intense yeah very intense yeah yeah there were some weeks where i did think i wasn't going to get through it but luckily steph was there on the end of the phone <laughs> tell us a little bit about your context why was this approach so fundamental to the pupils and families that you serve well, we're in obviously a very socio-economically deprived area, uh, one of the highest in South Wales, if not in Wales itself. And if anything, it was the perfect storm because of COVID, all the lockdowns, high pupil sort of non-attendance, school phobics. And we knew we had a lot of work, a lot of ground to make up to get those numbers back up to where they should be. 
we also realised very quickly after the first lockdown and children started to come back in the summer, I think it was 2020, wasn't it? Yeah. That we had a lot of work on our hands to help meet the needs or the unmet needs of these children. And hence the TIS project was sort of born, wasn't it? And yeah. We sort of got on board. And if anything, I think it's helped to save a lot of permanent exclusions, mm. fixed-term yeah. exclusions. And we're almost like a school within a school now because of the TIS project. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we had pupils coming in in, in form where yeah. they couldn't communicate, you know, only through an iPad and through their technology. Um, and we were actually giving them cards on how to sort of have that conversation and build that back up with them. They were learning through play again with sand trays and figures, talking about what they did last night by, you know, showing them these figures in the sand tray, who felt this, who felt that. And just widening their vocabulary again um, because they'd forgotten how to sort of talk about their emotions and not understanding their emotions not being able to deal with their emotions and you know they think it was oh is it normal to be angry you know they didn't understand yeah it is and how to deal with that afterwards I mean the, the course of torture so much on t- dealing with them as well and, our, and ourselves. So just thinking about this word trauma now, this word trauma-informed schools, I mean, obviously COVID is the, the big trauma that's hit the world in the last couple of years, but I suppose we could look at it a little bit more widely. So it's a scary word in a way. What, what do we mean by trauma? In what ways are your pupils traumatised, if I can put it that way? How many of them would would be traumatised and what does that look like in the classroom? We monitor, it's not anything you can see visually most of the time, I mean we, we monitor it through ACEs, there's an ACE score that we, we you know sort of tick off without the pupils knowing, yeah and we sort of monitor it through that and I suppose, sorry to cut in but for those of you out there who aren't familiar with ACEs, that's adverse childhood experiences, yeah, so sorry. that's okay no no that's fine, just for those who don't know yeah, and I think the big problem was just so much social mobility and knowing how to behave and how to interact with one another had been lost because nobody had experienced being on their own or, you know, with limited amount of social contact for the best part of a year. It was unheard of. I don't think we've had this ever, certainly yeah. not in teaching. So I think for everyone, it brought out different types of trauma. It could be anxiety, it could be a form of depression, it could be anger, it could be things from their childhood that maybe has been unresolved for a long period of time. And I think that's true of, of every adult and child, really. So it's not just helping to regulate the child, it's regulating each other, yeah. being there for each other. Yeah. So it's definitely helped us to reflect on our own practice, I would say. Definitely. I think it's highlighted anything, you know, any trauma that they had when they were younger or maybe trauma they're going through now. Mm. And it's just highlighted it, being home. And being out of social contact yeah. with everyone and almost trying to reteach them how to socially interact almost like behaviour, as our head says, is a taught curriculum, or at least it should be. So I'm curious now, there, there you are at the training, quite intensive, as you've alluded to. Was there anything in particular that you learned in that training that sort of helped consolidate a hunch that maybe you picked up on intuitively as classroom practitioners? And did it kind of give you a deeper understanding of how you'd experience these pupils in your practice up to that point? Yeah I think initially when I started teaching I wanted to fix pupils you know we've talked about this before when we were you know you want you want to be able to take all this you know upset away from them and reality is you, you know you, as the years go on you feel well I'm not fixing this child I'm not doing this I'm not doing that but 
after the training, you realise that they don't want to be fixed. They want that emotionally available adult. They want someone to trust, someone to talk to. Uh, they want someone where they can open up and how to deal with emotions. So it's not a case of being fixed. They just need that available adult to talk to and understand them and yeah, being able to, to have that comfort and the safe place of coming in and talking. And they say seven minutes of empathetic listening per day can actually be the difference between a permanent exclusion and keeping a child in school. And also, if you've got that one emotional available adult, we found this was quite interesting yeah. on our course, that it can be the difference between making sure somebody doesn't go to a PIU, doesn't end up in prison because of unresolved, unmet needs. So it does all trickle back to sort of childhood and trying to make sure those needs are really met in a really positive positive way definitely Mm, definitely a positive way yeah so as trauma-informed practitioners yourselves what would you say the kind of core aspects of your approach like or key strategies You, you talked about being an emotionally available adult but I'm keen to kind of know when you're a teacher on the ground already busy with a priority for teaching Welsh with a priority for teaching geography what are the strategies that you draw upon most regularly with these pupils? It's building that relationship, mm. isn't it? And they need to trust us. There's a child I worked with, his first two sessions didn't really go that well and I questioned myself, but it was a case of him not trusting me at the time and not being able to open up and not being able to want to do much. I think after the third session, after that, I mean... He comes to me every morning, good morning, miss. You know, he doesn't need that interaction, you know, once every hour or, or you know, an hour session then every week. He doesn't come to see me much at all now because he's happy with me just checking in, just checking in every morning with a good morning, how are you? He knows when I'm free and he comes to see me in my freeze if he does need me. But it's, getting, it's building that relationship and trust in the very beginning to allow them to open up and talk. And the other thing was that we were talking about just having a, a culture, we say culture for learning, a culture yeah. for relationships, really. And it's not, the first reaction is not, well, why have you done that? It's, it's oh, God, Tom, I can see you're so angry. I can absolutely see it in your face. Do you want to tell me about it? I'd love to help you. It's a total mindset change, isn't it? From yeah. what we, even what we've been trained to do 20-odd years ago. It's a total change. Mm. Yeah. I think at this stage we're going to say a big massive thank you to Liz who's actually got to run off now and do some teaching Um, so we're working in a busy school environment you're hearing it boots on the ground here podcast listeners so thank you very much for your time Liz and good luck with thank you very much (laughs) and we're not ignoring you for the rest of the podcast you've gone (laughs) (laughs) so I suppose uh, just to address this one to Steph then I I was listening to a session that you did for our students we we recently had a conference with our students and you were kind enough to record a session and you made an interesting comment in there which is that you felt that primary are ahead of secondary in some of this stuff and it made me think you know what what the things might be that mean that perhaps the secondary environment is not quite as conducive to looking after these these pupils? I mean, what, what do you think the issues might be with secondary as opposed to primary? I think, I mean, they, they are sort of very forward-thinking, the primaries, with a lot of things, whether it be curriculum for Wales or trauma-informed schools or anything. But I think because they see a lot of the children day in, day out, six, seven hours, is the same children, same class, they just have more chance to build those you know long-term relationships with them. But I think we can certainly learn lessons from our primary colleagues, definitely. Yeah. And I wonder whether 
we always talk about this, don't we? The accountability in secondary, the qualifications, the I'm a teacher of my subject, I've got to get through this, this and this. Does that maybe sometimes get in the way a little bit? I mean, I, I'm, are, are you two, are just two or three of you the sort of trauma-informed people or is this something you're trying to roll out all over the school? And how is that going with colleagues who might be a bit... I'm a subject teacher. <laughs> I think all you can do is just try and change the status quo one person at a time. And when they see the benefit of the people I mentioned, LB or TH or um, TSR, people like that, they see those those children just behaving differently because our approach is working. And slowly we are changing sort of, like I said, hearts and minds one person at a time and maybe changing anyone who does have maybe a cynical view or a sceptical view. And we are through... Uh, insets twilights really bringing those staff on board with us and i'm a big fan of over communication anyway so i really think that's really important that we just keep singing the same hymn sheet and keep changing hearts and minds one child at a time and the main thing is people can see a positive impact when the behavior is better in their own lessons with those children or at least when they know that child has a strategy to come and see someone else if it goes wrong so we're learning from our primary colleagues we have a lot of interactions with them anyway so that's good would you say that this has changed your pedagogy as well as you know how you're interacting with individual learners groups of learners and if so how has it changed I think it's always at the I mean I come from like like our head you know sporting background um, anyway so and he said it's something that me and him do naturally very, very well in how we interact with children using our personalities, which is absolutely key. So for me, I think I've always put relationships with pupils at the forefront because if you get good relationships, they will do anything for you in obviously a really, really positive learning environment. But what I'm trying to do is just change almost like the, the speak, the mindset and the way we talk to one another, the way the staff interact with each other, the way we talk to our pupils. So I always put sort of little phrases on my memos for the week for the different department members and say, right, come on, let's let's do this, let, let's build an army, as we say in TIS. So in terms of has it affected my pedagogy, I would say it's more, it's changed me a little bit as a practitioner, I would say, in a really positive way. Just making sure that I put the pupils always front and centre, always focus on positive relationships. And if it goes wrong, which it does a third of the time, I put it right a third of the time. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we talked at the start of the podcast and Liz mentioned that you've got sort of groups of pupils who are a priority when it comes to trauma-informed practice. But is this an approach that is sort of bespoke in one sense to those groups? Or is it something that is that but also has benefits for all learners in the class? I think on the first part of your question, you know, we sort of worked with these pupils. We did I Wish My Teacher Knew, so we found out lots of unresolved sort of traumas and angers and what have you and hidden toxic stress. I would say that looking back now, you can look back at the behaviour logs and go, God, yeah, that must be one of the reasons why that child reacted in that way. Uh, So they all say, you know, all all forms of behaviour is a form of communication and sometimes all you see is the behaviour and that's all you're trained to deal with. So I would say we need to sort of look beyond that at each individual child and every individual child has their own story and having the time just to stop, pause, hold your breath and go, right, why is Emma behaved in that way? Why is Tom behaved that way? There's a reason for it. Let's take the behaviour, put it to one side and get to the bottom of the story. 
But each individual child does have what we call emotional assessment, which we refer to in our podcast with Sally. Um, and then that gives us like, uh, almost like a session plan that we can work on with them. Mm-hmm. So in a bespoke fashion, that's where it starts from. Yeah. But a lot of them are sort of universal provisions across all pupils, mm-hmm. which I think is a really good thing. Mm-hmm. In our partnership, you know, with, with our schools like you, um, we are really privileged that we get to work with student teachers, people who are right at the very start of their, their journey, to use that word again, that we don't like, into the profession. And, you know, Emma and I and our, our colleagues, we, we do a lot of interviews of candidates for teacher education. A good chunk of those are fired with a real desire to kind of change the world and to use Liz's term, fix loads of pupils. They're ready. You know, you, you wouldn't have a problem um, persuading them to go jumping in and, and doing some of this stuff. But I sort of wonder whether it might be worth exploring and kind of where the line is drawn here what you should do what you shouldn't do what you can do and what you can't do what is not possible because actually I think probably uh, the will is not the problem sometimes that that a lack of experience or a surfeit of enthusiasm could lead some new members of the profession into some unfortunate situation so it might be worth getting your your take on that I think the first thing we would always say, and this is where I think the student teachers here have been really beneficial, they've sat in on some of the Tiz Twilights, um, they've listened to the podcast, they've been able to talk to Sally, myself or Liz. The main thing I would say for any NQT or PGC is shadow somebody who is experienced because there's a real danger of blurring the lines between Tiz and child protection going wrong. And I think, you know, like you said, Tom, you never want to put yourself in that position. But also knowing if, if you feel you've got to a point where you think hang on, this is too much for me. There's no shame at all in saying, Sal, can you help me with this pupil? Do you mind if if I sort of pass Tom on to you? Is that okay? And all the pupils here know who they can go to as an emotionally available adult. So it's not just me if I feel, God, it's a bit too overwhelming for me today to deal with this pupil. Mrs. Palakis is free, Mrs. Reno is free, Mrs. John, and they know who they can go to. And I I think there's no shame in actually saying, look, for me... I'm not in a place where I'm able to help you today, but Miss John said you're more than welcome to go to her. It's just knowing strategically how to get yourself out of those situations and knowing that you're never on your own dealing with it. There's always experienced people to go to. I think the danger is when everyone thinks, as we all do, we can do everything ourselves and we can't. And I suppose, I guess we're all going to have days when we're not going to be an emotional ava- emotionally available adult and and burnout i suppose is the is the logical end of that particular road definitely and like you said i think just making sure the children are aware of who they can go to but you're also not afraid to just pause hold your breath step back and go let's look beyond the behavior that child is behaving that way not personally towards me it's not aimed at me but let's let's help that child get back to where they need to but that comes with experience, of course. But the more you can immerse yourself in good practice and seeing lots of other teachers work and how they control with their personalities, that's a top tip, I would say, for all PGCs. And I'm curious, did this have a knock-on effect on the school's pre-existing behaviour policy? Did, did that have to change in order to align with the kind of values and, and core principles of this approach? Yeah, so the head has got, you know, non-negotiables, but he's also got his vision of making sure that everyone, as he would say in layman's terms, we we sort of turn out good men and good women that can actually function in society, and that's what he said. He doesn't want 
necessarily all A star ace candidates or pupils. He actually wants people that can function in society and know how to interact with one another. And he thinks that's almost more important than the grades they come out with. Um, and obviously then we hope to avoid other negative situations that they could end up in, particularly in the situation that we work in at the moment. So we do have a relationships policy, which did dramatically change as a result of trauma-informed schools. And that's for pupils and for staff to follow. Uh, it's almost like a set of guidelines, which we refer to student teachers having to follow. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, definitely. And the head is very what I would call forward thinking, visionary. He's involved with something called the Rady Project as well, mm -hmm. which is about socioeconomically deprived. So yeah, he's definitely been a real driving force behind this. And how does that how does that look on the ground again in the classroom? So if you've got a pupil who is presenting behaviours that aren't conducive to learning or that mean that they're having maybe a knock-on effect on their peers or sort of derailing the, the lesson for no fault of their own because of the what's at the core of this. What kind of steps would be taken and would you advocate in, in the context of a trauma-informed practice approach? Well, they always sort of give us advice and even as, as student teachers of making sure um, your most sort of troubled pupils or challenging pupils, you might sit them near the door. So if they are what we call runners, they've got an easy way just to get out and get some some sort of you know release from the toxic stress that's probably built up. Um, if they need to flip their lid, which it's literally called in neuroscience, flipping your lid, they have somebody they can go to straight away so they're not going to be caught truant in. Um, we're sort of just, I talked before about over-communicating what we expect of students, but also giving them a way out. I think that's really important, students have a way out. Mm -hmm. So you said, obviously, just making sure that, what what's it look like in the classroom? I think just being proactive and just recognising the signs. And the more you build those relationships with pupils, the more you invest in them, I guess the more you're aware of what their triggers are, really, and looking for those signs so you can almost be very proactive and go, you okay? Do you want to just go to Mrs. Reno for me and just see, you know, get that message done for me, hand that over for me? Mm -hmm. And almost just having that, that release for five minutes will regulate them and bring them back down. You've been really kind of straightforward and open about the fact that we're sitting in a, in a, a relatively socio-economically deprived area here in Barry. that your free school meal rate is I guess probably above average. Uh, you know, there's a there's a number of of things going on at home for some of these pupils. I suppose for people who might be sitting here thinking, well, in my school we've got a free school meal of four percent or whatever it might be. You know, it's a totally different environment. What would be your hunch about what what trauma might look like in those schools? What might be the issues facing those pupils? Would this be in some way different or would the same principles apply? What's your hunch on that? So, you know, that's a really good question because trauma can affect anybody, not just free school meal pupils. It can affect adults from all economic backgrounds, all different types of family backgrounds, different types of genders, different types of sexuality, religion. It can affect lots of different people in different ways. Just because they come from a more affluent background doesn't mean they haven't experienced some sort of toxic trauma or stress, which may have been resolved or may be unresolved. I would say it's probably more unique to free school meal settings of a high proportion, which we are way above national average by quite quite a few percent. But also, we're, we're quite proud of our sort of catchment and our situation because our head is like me. We absolutely love a challenge. And it doesn't matter whether you're free school meals or very affluent, we are there to help you. We will advocate for every child in this school. It doesn't matter what sort of background you come from. 
So we would never see it as a barrier to learning or barrier to relationships. In fact, we see it as a challenge that we will absolutely meet head on and overcome. But it does affect, and you know, you do have what we learned in our course, hidden traumas as well, which a lot of people have buried for a long time. And we talked at the beginning of the show about lockdown, sort of almost really highlighting that for a lot of people, even very affluent people. So the key is to recognise it, to act on it and to be really proactive. And I think we're really proud of doing that in this school. Yeah, it's interesting that word hidden, isn't it? I was just musing as you were saying that. I wonder whether the traumas are slightly less easy to spot, perhaps in those slightly more affluent settings. And maybe does the the high-flying thing get in the way sometimes because you've said your head's sort of more interested in rounded human beings than grades. I don't know. It might be an interesting conversation to have in your staff room, perhaps, if you are not in a school, in a, in a socioeconomically deprived area. I think all schools are sort of seeing it more and more now. Does, like I said, it doesn't matter what school background you come from, what FSM, what A-star A or A-star C grades you get. The school I came from previously in Bridgend, you know, I talked to a lot of staff back there and they've said, God, we are seeing the same sorts of issues as you. Yes, guaranteed you might have more flashpoints in your school than we do, but we are experiencing the same sort of issues around trauma and anxiety that you were seeing. And it's interesting because we've been involved in a piece of research with Welsh Government, which came out with this conclusion that COVID is a particularly interesting one, that the traumatic effect of COVID, the socioeconomic background of the pupil has not been a good predictor for for what the impact of COVID has been on that child. And let's let's couple all of the lockdowns with exams being cancelled twice, potentially a third time, uh, massive school absence, I think. In England last year, 62% of schools reported a massive downturn in the percentage of figures they were expecting to attend. There are some children who will never sit a formal exam before they go to university, and that is going to create its own toxic stress when they go to university to sit their first year exams. So there's an awful lot that I think society is sort of battling with, and we are the fourth emergency service at the end of the day, and schools have got a real job here, a real job. Yeah, it struck us um, in the same report that some attributes and circumstances that normally confer advantage, such as parents who, in normal circumstances, if pupils are working from home or, say, in the context of doing homework, would be very supportive and would be almost like the role of the teacher in, in that situation, maybe quite literate themselves, quite numerate themselves, those things that normally would confer advantage in a COVID scenario didn't work in that way for many kids because a lot of those parents were key workers and were not available themselves to work with those. So it's really exposed the complexities and maybe has caused us to think a bit more carefully about some of those biases that we we're all guilty of 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 holding about about learners about parents carers and that kind of leads me on to my my final question about this is that this seems to be happening it's taking on a lot of momentum in Pencoitra but I know that you're very much engaged with the parents and carers that you work with so how are you working with them with regard to trauma-informed practice? Are they have are they aware that this is going on? Are they kind of key stakeholders in in this in this approach? Yeah. So luckily, with the students that you know Liz referred to at the start of the sort of show, that um, we have key groups of learners that we are working with, and there is a waiting list 
it's all to do with time trying to get around them but we are lucky that we have really really good relationships founded on trust with our parents we communicate weekly with them either it's text to parents or phone call or an email or they will email us to say oh god this has gone wrong this morning can you touch base with little so and so when he comes in so we have really really good open communication i think that's something this school as as the old Bryn Havron as it was then was renowned for was its pastoral structure and that sort of pastoral mentor system that was always been in place and that has just flourished under Pencoitra with Lee Humphreys the head teacher but we have really really good relationships with our parents our executive head Dr Vince Brown has also started along with Tracy Young assistant head out of hours provision which is renowned by Welsh government uh, sector leading at the moment so they've come in and sort of had a good look around the parents engaging with us and coming in as well and seeing what's going on And I think the parents are going to absolutely have their socks blown off when they go over there and they see what we do beyond what this school was capable of doing. What does that entail, that out-of-hours provision, Steph? So we've had uh, sort of lots of grants and funding, which Tracy Young, assistant head, has worked our socks off to secure. Uh, So we've been really privileged to get sort of extra mentors, clubs, coaches. Uh, We've had funding from different sort of meal companies to run extra food provision for after school meals so children can stay here from four till seven Um, they can catch up on homework literacy they can sit and have a chat with somebody from pastoral from the head of your team they do basketball gaming club boxing they do loads of things and the good thing is that pastoral structure extends beyond the school day it's not any more traditional school as you and I would have known so it's really really powerful and again it's keeping the children off the streets and nobody nobody in Wales has done anything quite like this before so Welsh government are very much keeping their eye on us which I think our head is loving actually but yeah (laughs) it's always good when they keep your eye on you for a good reason isn't it this is interesting because this leads me on to my final and I suppose my obligatory devil's advocate controversial question which is that I mean we we did an episode a while ago looking at uh, a chapter of Lucy Crean's Cleverland's book in which she talks about the attributes of great education systems and she talked in that about the fact that teachers are backed up by specialists and that pupils are sort of fed in the direction of specialists with specialist skills relatively early on in some of these really really sort of good education systems and I suppose, I suspect your answer is going to be not in this school, but but thinking about schools more widely as the builders you, go past. You can tell we're in a building site. There's a juicy, this is the red van that goes past five is times it? an hour. Okay. Right, Steph, Tom's a real Hello, fan of van. ambient noise. I, yeah, as the person that edits the podcast, I, I've said this before, I'm followed around by people with power tools. It's my curse. Uh, <laughs> I'm just sort of thinking, you know... Uh, where do we draw the line and, and, and to what extent do we be, have to be careful where we draw the line between trauma-informed practice being you know, teachers taking a more rounded, more human-centred approach to their pupils and teachers papering over the lack of, of specialist help for pupils that need it and where perhaps they shouldn't be doing this stuff. You know, where is that line? It sounds like there's some good stuff going here, but are there some dangers there? And are we perhaps avoiding some big questions, some money-related questions about other people that should be involved with these pupils? Well, as we all know, you know, we've seen a lot on the news at the moment with, with things that have happened with children that have been severely harmed in the lockdown and a lack of, there's always a lack of sort of funding for social services, social care. And I, I mentioned before with a fourth emergency service, and I think, I think we're all very proud as teachers for the job that we do. But let me ask Tom the reverse question, if I may. (laughs) 
what would happen if we didn't step in and have trauma-informed schools? Where would these pupils be then? Yeah, I completely agree. I'm just, I'm asking, should there be more people? Should there be more specialists? Should there be more money? Is there a danger of saying to teachers, right, you've also got to be trauma-informed and therefore I don't then, I, I then as a person at a desk somewhere have absolved myself from the responsibility of funding proper social services proper specialist trauma care for pupils well do you know a good friend of mine god rest us old judith davis who was a, a friend of julia longville of course from what was uic and she always said to me steph you can delegate responsibility you can never abdicate responsibility so i think as teachers that is the world we now work in where it is very much our responsibility and that is sort of the career that you will now end up going down uh, so if it's not the career for you, if you're not sort of a people-orientated person, there's no shame in saying that and saying, look, this isn't for me. But those of us that are heavily invested in the future of the generation of tomorrow really do believe in trauma-informed practice. And it really is the way forward. Because if we don't help them, who is going to help them? And um, I think we, we really do... Um, Liz will back me up on this if she was here, you cheer her next to me. I think we have a massive vocational responsibility towards these pupils in ensuring they turn out as good human beings and if we don't do it who is going to do it yeah uh, i agree and I, I suppose the big question there is is there time and hard work valued commensurate to how the job is expanding now For, uh, you're right i i agree with you and i know we could end up going down a rabbit hole here but i I see what you're saying and I and I agree with it but that's a very very tall order mm. and I wonder are teachers paid enough for that are teachers given enough time to do all those things and I don't think those are big things to ask actually if they are no. the fourth emergency service mm. But that's my, that's my perspective. I think, you know, time is... There's never enough time in a secondary school. Tom, you, you alluded to exams and specifications and God knows what else we're supposed to do. I think more and more is expected of us every single day. And perhaps that's more of a sort of unionised legal discussion that I'm not going to go down. But, yeah, we definitely need more time... You know, if you do what you've always done, you're going to get what you've always got at the end of the day. And I think we need to buck that trend and we need to realise that the world has changed, society has changed, and we really have to sort of roll with it. But local authorities, Welsh government, everyone who's a key stakeholder does have to heavily invest in this. You're either all in or you're not. You can only operate on a shoestring budget, I think, for so much time. Um, otherwise, teachers will have nothing left to give for themselves and you can only give as much as you're able to give and there's no shame in saying that but we value everything that staff are able to do here and even just one percent will help one child from failing so doing what you can do i think is 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 enough sometimes at least for one day Thank you. You've been incredibly generous with your time. I can see that you have got a big pile of books I in do. front of you there. So I do. Have you got um, some interesting delights there to share with our listeners if they are A, interested in reading a bit more about trauma-informed practice and B, I think you've got some wider reading that you want to advocate as well yeah so uh there's one book which i definitely said and I've, i think i've said this in my sort of feedback to cardiff met as well uh trauma informed and attachment aware classroom by rebecca brooks so this is a really really good book it's, it's quite a heavy read but dip in and out of it i think that's really really good 
And I'm a big fan, as Emma knows, of The Teaching Delusion by Bruce Robertson. So he's got three books out at the moment, because let's face it, one is never enough. And the first one, I think, is the best one of all three. It's all about pedagogy, relationships, professional learning. I would say this is a course recommendation for all PGC students, Bruce Robertson. Uh, he's a Scottish school secondary teacher. I think he's actually a geographer, which is all the more reason I bought it, subconsciously, she says. <laughs> um, and then he's got another two out. So, Bruce, if you're listening, I need some royalties from you, my friend. There are three books here. So they're really, really good. And I would definitely recommend these two, Trauma and Attachment Aware Classroom and The Teaching Delusion. Excellent. And our other habitual short slot is something to try i mean is this going to be something related to trauma informed practice is this a thing that someone could do tomorrow in their classroom if they've had no funded input but just want to do the right thing tomorrow yeah definitely it's all about relationships it's all about positivity it's all about giving children opportunities and saying look it's gone wrong tom let me help you i'd love to help you out will you let me will you tell me why and it's always saying that without leading children and just be in there as we would for one another, just be there for them. Steph Robinson and in her absence, Liz John, and also in her absence, Sally Palakis, who I know has um, contributed already a, a lot to us as a university about this topic. Thank you very much for your time. Good luck with the way forward and winning over more hearts and minds with regard to trauma-informed practice. And we will be back in your ears in two weeks' time. Stay safe and well, everyone. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guests this episode were Steph Robinson and Liz John from Pencoitra High School in Barry, some children having lunch and a man in a big red truck. Thanks to all of them for what they brought to the episode today. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We're on Twitter at TalkTeachingPod if you want to get in touch. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. Enjoy teaching.